State of Digital Publishing is creating a new publication and community for digital publishing and media professionals in new media and technology. In this episode, we speak with Brian Bergstein, editor at Neolife, on their startup journey and path to monetization. Let's begin. Hi, Brian. How are you? I'm good, Vahe. Thank you. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for asking. Um, how's how's everything at Neolife these days? Oh, it's interesting. It's fun to be part of a startup that's um, kind of um, figuring things out. We were, we're experimenting, and um, it's a fun thing to be part of. I believe you used to work from used to work for MIT before. Um, sorry, the Business Review before, and now you've started here. So, just for those people who don't know much about you and about Neolife, if you could just give a bit an introduction. Yeah, by all means. So I'm a longtime journalist. I, I came up as a sort of general assignment reporter uh, working in newspapers and at the Associated Press, the wire service in the U.S. Um, this was going. This goes way back now, actually, to the 90s. Um, but I became a technology journalist pretty much full-time in 2000. I was the Silicon Valley correspondent for the AP, and then I was a national tech correspondent for the AP. Uh, based in New York. I covered telecom. I covered um, the computing industry. I've covered just about everything that counts under the umbrella of technology. I was the technology editor for the AP. And then, yes, I was at MIT Technology Review for seven years. That's a magazine that's um, owned by MIT, but published independently. The office is off campus and it covers everything in the world of technology. It covers the social, political, economic impacts of technology. It doesn't just write about things happening at MIT. Though the kind of um, mission of MIT to you know help people use technology to make a better world, that's very much part of the the, the uh, point of view of the magazine as well. So anyway, I did that for a few years, and then I was editor at large. And uh, for the last year, I've been helping to start this publication called Neolife, which is focused on the intersection of technology and biology. And it was founded by Jane Metcalf, who was one of the founders of Wired magazine. And yeah, we are um, at neo.life and we're also on Medium. That's where we're publishing our stories um, at medium.com slash neo, N-E-O-D-O-T-L-I-F-E. Cool. And how's how's the current setup looking like now and how did you meet Jane? I was introduced to Jane by a mutual uh, acquaintance uh, who told me that she was thinking about starting a new publication. And I thought that sounded cool. And we started talking and her idea was to start the publication with one sort of marquee feature. And she arranged all that. This was before I came aboard. And that was a look at a world champion free diver named William Truebridge. Free drivers are these guys who go down like hundreds of feet without any scuba equipment. They just hold their breath for three, four, five minutes. And her idea was to um, get him to sequence his genome to see if it could teach him anything about how he has this amazing skill and how he might better optimize his training and in the process tell a story sort of about peak athletic performance enhancement uh, and also what we really are learning from sequencing our genomes because that's actually a very much an open question. So we did a three-part series to kick off the publication and we've just been keeping it going ever since. We've been trying to cover developments in 
the brain and food and genetics in synthetic biology, um, sex, drugs, all these things that are at the forefront of a new way of thinking about what it means to be human. How are we using insights from science and new technologies essentially to try to live better, happier, healthier, longer lives? So it's, um, it comes from a point of view that technology is making a lot of things possible. Um, which ones are really going to be the best or the most interesting, most important? What are the implications of them? You know, how can people um, be smarter and more optimistic users of technology for their own bodies? So we're we're leaving aside everything happening, say, in like computer privacy. That's a separate that's a separate kind of publication, not part of what we're doing, but. I mean, you always hear about growth hacking. You hear about growth hacking all the time, and how people are trying to hack, hack themselves as well. So, it naturally makes sense that there's there's a growing interest around that area. Yeah. Brian, but but you but you came mostly from a technology background, and did that help you transition into into science and biology, or how did how were you able to come across to near life? Well, I I mean, this is my bias, of course, because it's my background. But I think that there's a lot that is um, gained when someone comes to writing about science, technology, um, biology, whatever, from a, a kind of classic journalistic perspective, rather than from saying that they're a science writer or a science communicator. So one thing I often notice is that there's, there's, there's a lot of people who are trained as science writers, first and foremost, and their mission seems to be to explain science, to somehow communicate science. And I think that in that case, the danger is that the, you're not fully an advocate for the reader. You're not really coming at it from the point of view of like what the reader is going to be skeptical about, should want to know. It's a subtle distinction, but I think if you say, okay, I'm working on a story. I'm trying to understand how this science works. I'm trying to understand what's been proven and what hasn't been proven. Um, that's different from saying okay, I really want to get across this scientific idea. It's just a, it's a shift in focus. So I always believe that a focus on you know, coming at it as an advocate for the reader rather than an advocate for the science that's trying to be, that is trying to be communicated. Uh, someone, put, someone put it well to me one time that says, it's not like people have this science deficit in their life that needs to be filled. I mean, that is in some sense true, but people don't look at it that way. And, and it, it would be a mistake to try you know, going around the world to like fill up people's um, science deficits. You have to approach a story about science with the same amount, the same kind of rigor or approach, the same kind of questioning, and the same storytelling techniques that you would bring to a story about any other complicated subject, whether it's the law or politics or anything like that. So I gave you a really long-winded answer, but I think that um, having to be self-taught about the science and making sure that I'm thinking, you know, kind of independently and as an advocate for the reader. I mean, I think it served me well. It brings my particular perspective, or at least it balances what I can bring when I work with people who are themselves scientists or have a scientific background and so on. What about the lack of uh, knowledge, expertise, and credibility? Because you're not my luck of becoming from a science background. Has there been a hindrance to you and, and Jane and the team so far? Or I mean, I think... Um, what we want to do is meet readers where they are. So we assume our readers are really smart and well-versed in many of these fields, but um, we don't want to only speak to them. So the um, 
the sweet spot is to have a story that's smart enough and nuanced enough to have something new for people who really follow these fields, but is just accessible, really readable, you know, by anybody who might just be curious about a subject. That would be the sweet spot. So what's, what, what have you identified the, your audience to be? What's the overlap to be so that you can meet the scientists, like the professionals and the people who are interested in the field? One thing, actually, this was common at MIT Technology Review, and I think from, the, from what we know about the readers we have at Neolife, is there's a lot of people who are really, really smart or uh, expert in one field. They live one field, they work one field, but they might be less attuned to what's going on in something that's adjacent. And what we offer them is the opportunity to see something interesting happening at the intersection of multiple fields, so so to be interdisciplinary, so to, say, to so to have a story about something happening in genetics that you know you may not be a geneticist, but let's say you have an interest in neuroscience or you are a neuroscientist, we we can we can show all readers that there's something happening, make a connection that they might not have otherwise seen. So you know we're not ever going to do a story I think that is fully satisfying for. The expert in who's going who's going to who's going to see it as 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 information dense as a as a new research article, but hopefully it is somehow useful to them in another way, and that it inspires maybe a connection, a research partnership, a new source of funding. So, so the way that say computing and, and neurobiology are intersecting, or genetics and nutrition are intersecting. That's requiring people to have to get out of being specialists in their fields anyway. So that we think that's some of the value we can add is that we are interdisciplinary and we're looking we're looking broadly. Understood. Um we'll go we'll go into the business model and everything else later. But um one thing that maybe for people who don't aren't as well versed in this field same same for me as well to be honest. Um like when I was in my research as well, there's there's quite a bit of overlap between Definition of neurology, neurobiology, neuroscience. Like, why isn't there one term for all this stuff? What, what's the difference between them, if you can elaborate the definition? Oh, neurology, neurobiology, and neuroscience, there's a lot of overlap. I mean, I think when people say they're talking about neurology, so all these are ways of are, are looking at the, the nervous system, so the brain and the spine and everything, but neurology probably has a little bit more focus on the nerves. Um, neurobiology would be um, specifically the biology of the nervous system, and neuroscience would probably be used more specifically about the brain and actually the behavior of neurons and brain cells. But um, there's a lot of overlap. In fact, you don't only have neurons don't only exist in the brain. You know, neurobiology is probably a subset of neuroscience, and neurology is um, just a little bit maybe to the side in the Venn diagram. Does that does that mean that like a scientist or a professional that's reading your publication, reading the uh, magazine, are they have they usually qualified in both areas, or they're just only qualified in one of them? It's a good question. I don't know, um, but we don't really. You know, our readers can be can be anybody, so I'm not too. Uh, they, they they shouldn't have to have a qualification in any of those fields. So your audience isn't defined based on professional profession title. No, I mean again, I think we want anybody who's we want anybody who's interested in, inspired by, working on ways to make you know technologies or use technologies that um, 
the human body perform better, perform differently, or um, shape the future of our species, right? So we're also looking at developments in food, which is you know an extension of of us and and goes in our bodies. So it's part of, it's part of what we're talking about. You know, our readers are we're, we're the, it might help if I if I say that we still being experimental, still figuring out what the business model is going to be. We are basically nurturing at this point an email newsletter that has curated links from around the web. It has um, some original stories, and it guides people to events that they might want to attend. But our original stories, we're producing anywhere from one to three at this point, original stories a week. We're aiming for some deeply reported features or some smaller items that offer some really specific original insight. And it's it's journalism, it's storytelling. No one has to have a qualification to to be able to read it. We publish on Medium, which is um, meant as a general purpose site for anyone to come and read. And I think we we our best stories have been the kinds of stories you could have read, you know, in a variety of publications, in terms of accessibility and uh, conversational approach. And so, and why did you guys decide to to go ahead with publishing on Medium? Because it offered a relatively easy CMS and access to a network of readers. I mean, there are just readers inherently on Medium. It certainly has its downsides. And our long-term plan is to move off of Medium onto our own site. It doesn't mean we would not publish anything on Medium, but it would mean we would not be solely dependent on it as our as our site. So moving to our own site is, uh, is something that, you know, think i hope will happen this year but medium has medium medium has um has a pool of readers um who may not always realize that they're landing on a sort of expertly produced uh publication and a highly polished and fact-checked and researched publication but that said that there are there are readers there so it's kind of a head start on on finding an audience how has it helped you with with uh validating the topics that you're publishing so far and and has it helped you with with your newsletter subscriber growth and yeah i mean so if we publish a story you know on medium tagged health you know there's a lot of people thousands of people who read health stories on medium and and might come across our story (laughs) whether that validates us or not is a good question i mean there's a lot of stuff on medium that isn't super high quality to be honest and maybe it's uh, too easy to be mistaken for just another kind of one man's opinion kind of blog post but I think between the art that we generate and the um, rigor of our research process, hopefully what we're doing stands out as something different. In terms of subscriber growth, we put a link to our newsletter or two in every story, and we get a fair amount of signups that way. Not as many as, um, as one might hope, but um, it is, again, a good way. If someone comes in cold at the story level, to one of our stories, they that's the first time they've ever heard of us. And right away there, we're asking them to subscribe to the newsletter. So that is, I mean, that is certainly a useful tool. It's one of many ways we have to get subscribers. But we're having, I think, a little bit more luck gaining subscribers from, I guess, more like organic outreach, people that we meet and talk about the site and talk about what we're doing every week in the newsletter. Well, definitely that helps in terms of association building credibility to the brand getting the awareness out there that i think in early stages of any publication that's going to be the most important factor because until you get your own organic growth 
you need to leverage on piggyback from others a bit initially. So no, that totally makes sense. I want to take a step back a bit, um, just more philosoph- uh, philosophically. Jane, she did a TEDx talk at the end of last year, September, and she talked about how, you know, she did a presentation around welcome to the neurobiological revolution. So is that the main uh, mission and driver behind why Neolife was started? Or for those who haven't watched it, could you explain a bit about that presentation? Yeah. So the idea is that there are more tools than ever for us to take um, aspects of our own health into our hands. And that is um, sort of empowering people um, in new ways. At the same time, there's new technologies and synthetic biology to actually engineer life, engineer crops, engineer the soil, um, take what nature has given us and make it better. This has been a somewhat controversial subject, of course, but um, the fact is that if we do it smartly and do it right, it can be this amazing enabler of innovation, of new opportunity. So the, so the tools for doing this are, to use the maybe overused term of Silicon Valley, they're being democratized. So it no longer takes a huge mega corporation to bring about, to, to, to tinker with biology in a laboratory. That's not something that only big chemical companies or big pharmaceutical companies can do. There are people biohacking. They're just playing around to see what they can do. And so that is often useless. It's often scary, but it's also inspiring and potentially interesting. And people are going to invent all kinds of things. And it's, it's akin to the sort of explosion of interest that happened in computing in the, ni- in the 1990s. In the 1990s, you know, when Jane and Louis Rosetto started Wired, computing was an old industry. I mean, you know, companies had been around for decades. But it was only when it started to become affordable and the tools for having a computer in every home and having access to the communications that it provided reached just about everybody that it kind of took off. And so you could argue that something similar is happening in biology. That's this idea of the neobiological revolution, kind of akin to the digital revolution. The idea that now the tools to better understand life, to tinker with it, to have much more fine-grained knowledge and control over how things work at the molecular level. So it touches on old you know, bioethical questions. Um, it's scary. It's exciting. And it just feels like fertile ground uh, to write about. I think it is a big open space of what you can write about. There's a lot of things that, that are happening at the moment. What are, what are some of your thoughts and areas in terms of, like, how do you guys go about now with, with your current team in terms of determining what topics you need to focus on and, and do the beat journalism going into the in-depth articles? What, how do you currently go about that? Yeah, um, I think all good stories, this is true in any field, start with an unanswered question. And so we have unanswered questions like, huh, how does that work? Or, wow, what could that mean? Or who's this guy, you know, we look for, we look for questions who, that, that, that want an answer. Somebody says something, you know, oh, you don't need to take, um, uh, an ADHD drug. You can just, um, you know, play this computer game and we'll rewire your brain for you. You know, that's the claim made by, um, a company called Achille, A-K-I-L-I. It was a, one of the stories we did. And it's a fascinating idea. So that's a bunch of unanswered questions right there. Is that true? 
how does this game work? If, if digital therapeutics are a real thing, what else could be treated you know, with apps and with software? So we, we start with things that we just find curious and we, that prompt in us, uh, whoa, how does that work? And what would the implications be? And you know, you, you, if you follow those threads, you can bring the reader along with you on a, on a pretty interesting journey. So we're looking for things that are new, that, that kind of maybe challenge people's expectations, um, that give them reason to be inspired, uh, optimistic about the future. We're not, we don't want to be hand wavy or um, Pollyanna-ish, but we, you know, we're sort of skeptical optimists maybe, where it's like, well, let's see, this going to have to prove it, but if it works, cool, you know, that kind of thing. New technologies often, you know, they mess as much stuff up as they improve, and then you'll need still more technologies to fix the problems created by those technologies. But that process of fixing and repairing and, and you know, that is, um, that is this great kind of churn of technology. So we look for things that are kind of really kind of driving that forward, you know, like what's cool, what's solving a problem. And again, if it's going to create a new problem, let's talk about those. What are the ethical issues raised by those new technologies and so on? There's really like infinite things to write about. If you look at developments happening in the brain and genetics, this is supposedly the genomic era, but we're finding out that we're just, there's just as much that we don't know as now what we do know. The more we know, the more we know we don't know. So there's like this, this sort of infinite cycle of, of new questions to ask and, and just cool new ideas to talk about. That's the point, Brian, that it's, it's infinite. So how are you prioritizing that? Like even from a day-to-day basis, you guys are a startup. You need to get, you want to make sure, you want to really work hard to make this work and, and bring traction to it. So how, do you, how are you really prioritizing what you're going to be focusing on? It's really hard. Um, this is a big problem. And this is the source of probably like my greatest dismay <laughs> because no matter what we cover, we're going to miss a lot of stories. We're a very small team. It's Jane and me and an art director and a marketing person. And we have um, somebody who works on um, our curated links package. And we have a few other contractors that we're working with on some various technical projects. But then after that, it's all freelance writers. We are somewhat bound by the the rigors of making sure we get out, you know, at least one good story every week that it's appropriately, you know, researched and fact-checked and, and vetted. Um, so we, we're going to leave a lot on the table. <laughs> that is, that is, um, that's just always going to be true. How to prioritize. I mean, I want to make sure Jane and I talk about making sure we, we have an appropriate mix of subjects. So we don't want to write about the brain every single week. Um, if we haven't written about the brain in a while, feel, it kind of feels time to do another good brain story. But I like to be led by the pitches I get from freelancers. You know, someone has a great story. I don't want to overthink it too much and say, well, we did a story on genetics. It's like, you know what? The, the re- most of the readers who read that story aren't going to say, wait, you just did a genetic story. They just want a good story. So I try not to overthink it and I try to be forgiving um, when someone else inevitably has a story that I wish we had done. So just to, just to recap, it's a balance of some of the topics that you know people are mostly reading about at the moment and then you're balancing it with the freelancers that you have and looking at the topics that they're pitching to you and seeing whether you can balance it out yeah when you're producing the publishing publishing content and and, and that, does, do you know like for example that that's going to give you a side of line in terms of new advertising or new um subscribers like do you know that like what hypothesis do you have at the moment that's helping you guide you 
through your path to, to growth? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, it, there's always the danger when you write about a lot of subjects that a reader who comes in and really likes that a story that you do on one subject will be kind of disappointed to find that you don't always write about that subject. And that's okay. I mean, we're going to represent a certain kind of worldview and a certain kind of point of view. And that's our sweet spot. So I think, I think that's an advertising opportunity because we're kind of representing like a psychographic more than a specific job title. I think there's a lot of advertisers who don't even necessarily have to be in the, um, in the sciences that want to reach that certain kind of worldview people with that certain kind of worldview, people with that sort of psychographic, right? I don't think too much about that. The selling the ads is Jane's point of point of view. I'm, I'm sort of, you know, laser focused on the editorial, but um, I'll put it this way. Our most highly trafficked stories so far have been about um, the top five. One is about whether your cell phone can keep you from getting depressed and ways that the cell phone can actually offer interventions against depression. The second is a story about the genetics of IQ. The third is about sobriety and drug use among millennials. Then there's a story about technologies that would let um, same-sex couples reproduce, the, the technology that's developing the labs known as the artificial gamete. And there's the package I mentioned about the free diver and his genetics. So you can see like in those top five, like we've hit really like, I think, we've hit home runs with stories on such a variety of subjects that it's teaching me that there is an appetite for a publication that, 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 that reflects a point of view across a lot of technologies rather than just having to always be about one technology or one scientific field. So yeah, I think that rules out a, a certain amount of advertisers who maybe just want to sell, you know, like lab equipment. But um, I, I presume that opens us up to, I would think, some higher value kind of more mainstream or even consumer product advertisers. That makes sense. And I guess that's probably where, I mean, what do you think the, in terms of where medical publishing is leading to? Because, you know, when you think about it, when someone who hasn't read some of the more nuanced articles, they mostly think about it as medical journals that scientists put together and it gets published and it gets recommended by peers and that's, that's people who usually read it. So do you think that might? Do you, what do you? What are your thoughts in what the current state of publishing is media is now, yeah, in science and and what do you th- see medical journals journals play a role in that current state? Yeah, I mean, well, medical journals are um, they're not doing journalism um, or storytelling. They're essentially presenting data, um, and they're very expensive. A lot of them. I mean, look, what you're asking points to a challenge. I think we'll have which is around how do we, and this is what we're starting to work through now, which is how do we smartly build a subscription business? So we want to have advertising, we want to have events, and we want to have um, subscription services for readers. Like what will readers pay us for? And I think the medical journal market is not the model for us. Those are expensive. And there are things that people have to read for their work. And I'm sure they expense these, you know, or their institutions, you know, by the subscriptions to Nature and Science and all the various, you know, Journal of the American Medical Association and so on. The challenge for us will be to do this kind of non-specific or rather non-limited, non-niche kind of storytelling, but make it just as valuable to people in their jobs and in their life that they would want to pay for it. So. There's, there's a few ways to do that. 
You can charge for going deeper on a certain subject. You can be very broad at kind of the top of the funnel, but actually only charge for going deeper on a certain subject. Um, you could kind of stay broad and have a meter. And I think that's something we're still working out. And that's part of what we're still um, learning from being in this beta phase where we're publishing just a couple stories a week because um, you might get different readers at all. You know, there's different readers who will come in and read a lot of stories for free and there are a lot of advertisers who might want to reach them. There's a lot of readers who might come to an event and not read much of our stories. There's readers who would pay, gladly play to go deeper on something. And there's, I, I, what's unclear to me is how much any one reader is in kind of m- multiple camps. So yep. anyway, I know that's something you, you think a lot about. Um, what's, what's your advice on that? My advice is that you, I guess you need to know what, if you're going to go deep or you're going to go broad because if you're going to go deep, then then you can play the subscri- then you can go into the subscription game and just focus on building up your subscription audience. But if you're going to go broad, then you need to focus on you need to focus on scale and build up mass. So, and I've been speaking to like other people as well. I have another podcast, another podcast around food publishing that I spoke with someone else on and. What they but what they're saying is that they still want to go uh, scale. They want to scale, but the reason why they want to scale and do subscription is because they they have an underserving community. So that I think also plays a factor as well. If you know there's a there's a real underserving community and it, there's no quality in terms in terms of the articles that are being produced, then you can try to hit the sweet, sweet spot between going scale and subscri- um, going um, subscription, uh, advertising and subscription together. But again, it just comes down to your capabilities, where you're up to in the business and stuff like that as well. So, Sometimes I think it might, ideally, I don't know if this will happen at Neolife, but in certain publications, I know this happens. It really almost might require separate staffs. There are people who focus all day long on um, subscription materials for readers and people who focus all day long on the kind of more general stuff that's going to be outside the paywall. But again, because it depends whether it's a hard paywall or a meter or what. Well, there are different parts of the acquisition funnel anyway, so that, that totally makes sense to me. You'll need, you need to separate that out, otherwise it doesn't, it's going to be a balancing act. So do you, what, do you, what, what other examples have you seen in the current, in, in your industry now in terms of journalism that not you want to copy, but maybe what, what are the current competitors out there now who are doing something similar in your space and what are they doing? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't see anybody doing anything journalistically that we're doing someone that identified this this basket of technologies and this they're not articulating the the kind of opportunity for the world that we're saying these technologies present but of course stories that we're in that we are interested in do appear in places like the atlantic wired new york times so but to your point to your point about the business of publishing has anyone really successfully built up a you know, I think there's some interesting examples like Backchannel did something similar. In fact, even already starting on to, to Backchannel also started on Medium. They focused um, with a little with a little bit bigger staff than we had on a certain kind of technology reporting, a certain kind of in-depth analysis, call it second day stories, helping people make sense of technology trends and technology news and people driving tech companies. Um, so back channel, which was then acquired by Wired, which is part of Conde Nast. I mean, I think that's that's an interesting model to me of how to succeed journalistically at covering something that a lot of people are ostensibly covering, but doing it in a way that feels fresh and has a clear point of view and perspective. 
I think that was successful. Um, I don't know whether they made the it it made sense as a business, like whether what they sold it for, you know, how compared to what they put in and all that. But um, I think anyone has really shown a great model for doing what we're doing. There's some really interesting, um, you know, if you look at a company like Axios, they're growing fast, um, but it's all around the news model, you know, rather than analysis and point of view and perspective. Um, and I don't see us becoming a news site. I think it's too easy. It would be too easy then to lose track of what value we bring if we're covering news. But then there's also like self-help sites and more psychology sites where, where that also a bit it gets murky in those type of sites where they also speak about tech talk about science a bit as well so what are your thoughts around that do you think that there's an overlap there or that there's indirect competitors in that in that space or yeah there is a lot of competition from that because for a lot of readers it just all comes at them kind of flat like who's to say what we're writing is any more merit than what they can read on some self-help site or some kind of dodgy you know quackery kind of new age site all I can do is try our best to be grounded in, uh, in in the science and link to the research and to um, you know vet our stuff and hope that over time people will will see us as an accurate and reasonable source. But you're right; it is competition. Anything that people can do with their time other than reading us is competition. So um, it is really tricky. How to stand out is uh, the only way I know. You know, I don't have a great answer. The only way I know is just to keep going after truly original and fresh and surprising stories that really delight the readers. They feel, wow, this story is memorable. I'm glad I came across it. Was that based from your experience from MIT? Have you saw that success in doing it that way as well? Is that something that Jane? Has done that way that which you think will help with near in your life well i mean i would like to think that if you just go after great stories and tell them honestly and compellingly then you know the rest will take care of itself i know the media business is tricky enough that that's not necessarily true so i think what i'm describing is necessary for success but but not sufficient um we'll have to to make it as a business you know find um, revenue streams in crowded markets. I mean, advertising and events are, um, you know, hardly things that we would have all to ourselves. But I just, I think that if at the very least it, we're just putting original, compelling stories out there into the world, um, then we'll have been successful on some level. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, we can make the, <laughs> the business side fall into place. I will say that I think this is a really exciting time in media. So everybody talks about media being such a mess and obviously it is but um the bright side of that is like the half-life of a brand in media right now is really short um you know there's companies that um didn't exist a year or two ago that now are um widely read so that's the opportunity you know just a whole bunch of traditional publishers are struggling and may not exist in two years and that's scary but again the flip side of that is i feel like we have as much opportunity to be widely read in a year or two as as anybody else Hundred percent. I think now, like, it's is now is the best time ever to you know, really stand stand out and be on the top. Like, because there's no that there's no that it's not that there isn't that lock of you know you, when you're going to read news or you, you're going to read features that you have to go to these type of sites in order to get them from there. It's pretty much everywhere. So, and there's also more opportunities in, than in the past to get people to revisit material you've already produced. So. If we do an in-depth feature, its uh, shelf life can be really quite long. Um, 
it's ever been content. Um, yeah, I mean, ho- hopefully we're writing about things that will, you know, will will need an update in a few years because we're not writing about things at all like twenty years off in the future. But yeah, exactly. So I think that's nice too because if we write something and it doesn't immediately get the engagement we want the subject will be back in the news at some point. And it's really gratifying to be able to say, aha, well, we have this story that we did, you know, three months ago that helps you understand this subject better. And you can kind of inject it into the conversation. And that is, I mean, I think that's actually really cool. To, it gives us more ways to be useful to people. And that's ultimately what I want. I'm, I'm in the same boat as well as you are, especially from my, my perspective on media technology. Brian, so like, have you got, do you guys have a, a at least, a, like, do you have a plan as to where you want to move ahead in 2018. And you said that you wanted to focus on getting up a new website, but what are some of the steps that you're going to take in order to help you define what your model is, that their model is for near life and path to monetization? Well, I think what we want to do is we've, we've actually um, monetized to, to a small extent already. We've had a magazine reprint one of our stories. We've had some advertising. We've done an event. So that has been encouraging. And now it's just a matter of doing more of it and having this sort of now richer library, a year's worth of a library of content under our belt has, um, I think will make all that easier because again, we have some good data on the kinds of stories that we do best and the subjects that we've, we've done well on. Um, we have a good, um, group of freelancers that we keep working to. So, so I think editorially, like we have the momentum now, what we need to do is see if we can scale it up, um, produce more stories, maybe do a newsletter more than once a week. Uh, we're talking about uh, starting a podcast and I think we can slowly ramp to the point where awareness just, just grows and then move on to our own site, um, as well. So these are all things that uh, to answer your question. These are all things that I think we could, we should be able to do in 2018. What's going to, two parts to this question, what's going to be able to, for you to, to determine to say, okay, let's start a podcast now. And then what's the tipping point to then moving across to to your own website we're talking to people who could be uh do do the podcast for us so we're, we're talking to people who have um, um some experience doing uh science or technology related um audio storytelling so we want to find the right the right uh, kind of voice and it doesn't have to necessarily replicate all of our content it could be a podcast that's a subset of what we write about I don't know. I think the tipping point will be we'll know we'll know when we're ready to put out a great product, and not until then would we do it. And um, as far as tipping point for our own site, it's a good question. Um, I think it depends on a bunch of um, resource questions and um, whether um, uh, whether it makes sense just compared to all the other things we want to do to scale up. That makes sense. I think I think what I got from from what you said was around. You know, probably have probably have to do more of of all the advertising events and stuff. So then you can see some consistency, and then with the new different content avenues, look getting the right people to who have specialty in that content medium to be able to deliver on that and do it with, aligning with your with your guys' mission. Because you guys are a small team, so that's that's what I got from. It. Hopefully, whatever everyone else got out from that, then I hope they'll draw the, the lessons from you what, what you've said. Brian, just with just to to wrap it up, I guess what are some of the what's your career advice for someone who wants to start in tech and, and science and or even even looking at working in a startup? Is there requirements to work in a startup before? Yeah. Well, I think a willingness to do anything is pretty crucial. In a startup, 
Um, it doesn't help to have someone say, oh, I don't do that. I mean, everybody pitches in on everything from thinking about how to promote stories to thinking about what stories we should do to thinking about the headlines. All of us on the team think about our headlines and weigh in on um, the subheads or decks, as we call them. All eyes are on the story because we're such a small team. And I think um, more broadly, though, if someone wants to go into tech or science journalism, I would remind them that the unanswered question is what drives reporting forward and what can differentiate a story from a topic. So often I'll get pitches from writers who kind of already know what they want to say and they're just like, okay, my story is going to say X, Y, and Z. And that worries me because if you already think you know what it is you want to say and you just want to say it, I mean... Other than if you like, you've read a book and you want to write a book review and you know what you're going to say in this book review, I don't think knowing what you're going to say at the outset is a very good path. I don't think the result is going to be all that interesting to the reader. Um, I think the best stories start with, un- with an unanswered question and try to walk the reader through the journalist's experience of answering that question. So that would be my advice to, to tech and science writers is to say like, okay, what are you curious about? And are you open to learning about this in the reporting? It's, uh, it might sound obvious, but you'd be surprised how often uh, the pitches I get don't reflect that point of view. I guess that's what that at the end of the day helps get repeat visitors as well and, and producing series of content around the specific topic if you really focus on, on that unanswered question. It was really good that you explained it, I think, because I didn't think about it that way as well. So so appreciate that. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on your show. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the State of Digital Publishing podcast. Listen to past and upcoming episodes across all major podcast networks. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and join our community groups. Finally, visit stateofdigitalpublishing.com for premium information, resources, and become a member today. Until next time.